from PRX. Stew. Stew. Dear. Dear. Oh. Ew. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Oh, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show, it's not just your ears. It's what lies between your ears. It was a music that didn't really have a name yet. When we are born, we cry. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. There's a show on Broadway right now that is not quite like anything I've ever seen or heard. It's called The Encounter. When you walk into this big Broadway theater, at your seat is a pair of headphones that you wear for the whole show. And when the show starts, it just starts. There's no curtain raising. An actor named Simon McBurney, middle-aged English, is telling a story. And it just unfolds before your eyes. But really, mostly in your ears. It's a story of a real-life American photographer named Lauren McIntyre. The drone of the engine faded. Lauren McIntyre was completely alone. 400 miles of Amazonian jungle in every direction. 400 miles from what he called civilization. In the late 1960s, he got lost in the Amazon and was sort of taken in by a native tribe. They share almost no language, but they manage to connect first with gestures and then, it seems, telepathically. Simon McBurney, the guy at the center of this play and the only actor on stage the whole time, is sort of a theatrical sorcerer. He bounds around the stage, conjuring the sounds you're hearing using low-tech sound effects and these pitch-shifting mics. And what looks like a great big styrofoam head. It's a fairly high-tech binaural microphone that captures sound and then allows everybody in the audience to hear it in three dimensions in the headphones they're wearing. Let me just play some of the pictures and make sure that they, you can hear them. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. A couple of weeks ago, Simon came by the studio with some of the gear from his show. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. One, two, three, four, five. Okay. Oh, good to see you again. Yeah, yeah, how are you? I'm well. Great. Simon McBurney has made a career out of creating surprising and unusual theatrical experiences. His company, Complicité, is based in Britain and big in the experimental theater world. This play, The Encounter, is based on a nonfiction book with the same title. It's Lauren McIntyre's real story as told to a Romanian author named Petru Popescu. Back in the 60s, when McIntyre was in Brazil, his camera was smashed, the film was lost. So this book, his story to this Romanian author, is the account of the adventure. It's not just this 
extraordinary story about this man, but it is also questions that story about the way that we have gone into these other worlds, appropriated things, the way white Western uh, colonization has wrought such destruction on the world. It also questions the way that we perceive time, you know, the way that we think about the environment. As he panted behind the headman, he suddenly thought, what a ludicrous ambition. Photographers so momentary, so fickle, trying to fix time into one moment, trying to grasp the present, trying to take a picture. It's all to do with fear, he thought. Fear of the past, fear of the future. And as he looked around at his companions, so unlike these people, they never think of the future. They never hoard or store up belongings. Time for them was an invisible companion, something comfortable and unseen like the air. Whereas for us, the civilizados, time is a possession, an increasingly more efficient machine. Late that afternoon, they broke into what had once been the most enormous clearing. A sudden rainstorm lashed down. All the water made it down from the sky here, and within seconds he was wet, and for a moment panic came up as he realised how quickly the river could rise. He pushed it away, and he looked at his companions in amazement. What were they doing? It seems as though almost you're in a workshop creating this uh, complicated, rich illusion of a story going on of a guy in a jungle and other guys and natives and all, all kinds of things with with nothing and almost nothing in a in a conventional theatrical sense except telling the story and these weird things you do with sound. Well. Everything on stage is the stuff that you throw away. It's plastic. It's wires. It's all the kind a crappy of table. A, a yeah. crappy table. It's all the stuff you see thrown away. It's like a rubbish heap, if you like. And I want the audience to be aware that that is the life and the, the environment that we live in. And through this, through what you see, you arrive at the most biodiverse place on the planet. And the muscle, or if you like, the, 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 the sense that we use to get to this place is not just your hearing. It's not just your ears. It's what lies between your ears. It is the power of your imagination. And that, of course, is one of the subjects of the piece. Right. And, and not just in the sense of, oh, I'm watching a play and suspending disbelief, but in, in life itself. That's right. Our perception of the world is based on the stories of that world. And, you know, people are listening to my voice and that is a reality. And you're hearing this voice, which is uh, a kind of high uh, British tenor. But now something curious is happening because my voice is changing, if you like. It's going down in pitch. It's getting lower. And my voice, you can literally hear it changing. And now, for some reason, I don't want to speak with a British accent. I want to change into an American dialect. It's not because I think it makes me more attractive to your listenership. It's because this is the voice that I use for the principal character in this play, Lauren McIntyre. So if fiction is taking place in your ears, that is to say you're now associating uh, this voice with Lauren McIntyre. You're no longer associating it with that strange British guy. Uh, <laughs> but if, 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 if I go on the other microphone, you'll find how much your brain has adjusted 
because suddenly I sound like Mickey Mouse. <laughs> and this seems to be more fictional than the other voice. Now, if uh, you've got your headphones on, I'm going to move away from this microphone and you'll hear uh, something slightly different, which is... Uh, uh, for those of you who have headphones on, suddenly I seem to be outside your head, not in it. That is because I'm standing in front of another microphone called a binaural head. It imitates the way we hear uh, as human beings. It imitates our hearing so convincingly that it produces the fiction that I am somewhere behind your right ear. And the brain believes in this fiction so totally that were I to lean forward and, and, and breathe into this microphone, you would think that I was breathing in your right ear and your right ear will begin to heat up. Feel this. <laughs> And of course, I'm not uh, breathing into your right ear. It's just a, uh, um, it's, ju it, it, it's just a fiction. Oh my God! There's a, there's a mosquito in the in the studio. That's crazy. It's, uh, it's November. But in fact, if you were in the studio and Kurt will uh, uh, verify this, there is no mosquito. It's just a curious object which looks like uh, a round kind of Coca-Cola can. In fact, it's nothing but a speaker. And in fact, it's not even the recording of a real mosquito. It's just somebody blowing into a comb with a piece of greaseproof paper, but the sound it produces is so much more mosquito. In fact, I'm not speaking any longer. That <laughs> itself is a recording. So the layers of fiction which the human mind wishes to believe uh, 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 should, at this point, tell you that we're not quite certain what is real and what is not. Okay, that's you want me to turn enough. this off? Yeah, I want you to turn it off. I'm talking to myself now. <laughs> okay, all right. Okay, let's stop there. There we are. Is that better? Yeah, it's fine. A couple of years ago, Simon McBurney and one of his collaborators went to Brazil, to the Amazon, and sought out the descendants of the people whom McIntyre encountered back in the 60s. Simon wanted both to interview them and record sounds from that jungle to use in the show. And these indigenous people welcomed him. They took me on a, an extraordinary journey into the rainforest where I had never been. And I began to understand and appreciate what McIntyre was talking about, but also the way that these people see the world. Because the out, their sense of the forest and their sense of their inner reality, what we call our consciousness, what goes on inside our head, the thing that makes me think I am Simon McBurney and your curtain, we're not the same person. The interesting thing for them, this sense of inner life, is that it was inseparable from the world around them. You abuse or you exploit the outer world and something happens within. Right. So this question of how we feel connected, if you like, to other people, to families, to other families, to our nation, to other nations, is, um, I think, a very urgent question. And if I was to sum up the whole show, it is about our ability to listen to each other yes. and to the world. Yes. Uh, Simon, thank you so much. I'm delighted. Thank you for having me. If you happen to be in New York in the next couple of weeks, I urge you to check out The Encounter. It's running on Broadway until mid-January. The basic idea of The Encounter is about these people from profoundly different places and cultures, America and the 
Amazonian jungle trying to communicate and make themselves understood. Well, there's a new movie right now called Arrival that's something similar. It's about aliens landing on Earth in their giant egg-shaped spaceships making first contact with Earthlings. And their motives and thoughts and everything about them is inscrutable to the Earthlings because the aliens don't speak a language like anything on Earth. Are you kidding this? Yes, sir. It's uploading back to base camp. Human. 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 That's Amy Adams playing a linguist who is tasked with trying to figure out how to communicate with these extraterrestrials. Physically, these beings look like giant octopuses. They've got seven legs, not eight, but close enough. And to try to translate their alien language, Adams' character has to figure out what it's like to be them or what it must be like to be them. And, of course, the fate of the whole world hangs in the balance. Peter Godfrey Smith is a real person in real life who's also been thinking a lot lately about what goes on in the mind of an octopus. He's a philosopher of science, and in his new book, he actually points out that octopuses are the closest thing we've got on Earth to an alien life form. That book is called Other Minds, the Octopus, the Sea, and the Deep Origins of Consciousness. Peter Godfrey Smith, thanks very much for coming in. It's a pleasure to be here. So you write in this marvelous book that the octopus and I guess its siblings uh, are are the closest we're going to come on Earth to to, uh, encountering an alien life form. Explain what you mean by that. Sure. If you ask about the most recent common ancestor that we share with an octopus, you've got to go very far back down the evolutionary tree to about 600-odd million right. years ago. And, and and for comparison, our common ancestor with the chimp was just 6 million years ago. So this is – we're talking about a long time ago. It's a long time. And in a way, the, the number itself doesn't capture all of it because it's so far back in the history of animal life that there were no animals on land. Right. The biggest things alive at that time would have been maybe some jellyfish. Yeah. Uh, so life was profoundly different. So if octopuses are so different from us, they're essentially, as you say, alien beings, the fact that they made the aliens in Arrival look vaguely like octopuses or squid, uh, they kind of got that right. They got it right, uh, it, it, perhaps even in a, in a richer way than that. So uh, I saw the film uh, a week or so ago, and when you first see the animals, uh, the imagined you know, what the filmmakers imagined right. as these plausible aliens. They look like octopuses or perhaps squid, as you say. Right. But as the film went on, I found myself thinking, right, they're not really modeled even on octopuses. They're, uh, if anything, modeled on something like a, a box jellyfish. They have not a bilaterally symmetrical design, but what's called a radially symmetrical design. They have they have no front and back. They've just got a top and bottom, essentially. It's more of a circular sort of structure. And what was, I think, good about that, one, one of the many good things about that film was the fact that when they imagined something a, as a plausible alien, they went so much further from us than filmmakers usually go because they even left the bilaterally symmetrical 
uh, design. And as you get further from us, filmmakers have usually made the ones that are further away more hostile. Yeah, because we can't feel – they're not cute. They're not mammal-like. We don't feel bonds with them, I guess. Right, right, right. Octopuses, because as as you, I mean, they are they are so unlike us. I mean, comparatively speaking, chimps and 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 dolphins and the rest are. Yeah, we get that. They're they're they're. But but octopuses are not like us at all, are they? In some ways, they are. Um, I think you look at an octopus and you get this combination of radical difference and these little flashes of similarity. Right. Uh, so the kind of curiosity that they exhibit, the fact that you know we find them interesting, they find us interesting, yeah. and they find novel objects interesting. This certainly wouldn't be true of all the species, uh, but at least some species of octopuses, including the ones I hang out with in Australia, they love novel objects, uh-huh. uh, things that they've never seen before. They collect them. Uh, and play with them. Play with them. Yeah. We'll be very re- reluctant to give them back. Uh, so tape measures, I've had to get through a lot of tape measures because once an octopus gets hold of it, you probably aren't going to get it back. And octopuses uh, can remember individual humans that they've encountered right, in right. a sort of aquarium And type, attack type them. Setting. Like you write stories about that, like experimenters, like the same scientists will walk past them and – and the, and the octopus will squirt that that one scientist again and again. Right, right. Which is amazing. It is. When you see that, you think, okay, they're not so different. Right. And so you speculate a lot in this book about what octopus consciousness might be. What what do you imagine to be the big differences between our consciousness and theirs? The two things I think of as plausible huge differences are Firstly, just the different sensory worlds. The, the, the way they sense things uh, differs radically. Now, they are very visual animals and they've got eyes like us. But uh, the fact, firstly, that everything that's touched is tasted with those eight arms, they're continually tasting sort of so many things around them. Literally tasting. Literally tasting. And, and their brain essentially is decentralized and exists out in those eight tentacles. Part of it's in... In their head. Where you'd expect to find it, yeah. right, between the eyes. Uh, but but a larger part of the nervous system, as you say, is, is spread through the body. Right. Also, the skin itself has a kind of light sensitivity. There's almost a kind of very, very minimal vision. So if you imagine being an animal, firstly, that uh, has that kind of massive sensory openness to the world, that's a big difference. The, the whole thing. The whole T- thing. Taste and whatever version of seeing they're doing is the whole body. Exactly. You're right. Um, Peter, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Peter Godfrey Smith's book is called Other Minds, The Octopus, the Sea, and the Deep Origins of Consciousness. Coming up, a theater critic just is not buying Shakespeare's plot devices. Literally, someone parts their hair the other way, and the entire town doesn't know who it is. That is next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Studio 360. The night sky is full of these poetic names. 
constellations and all the planets, except us, are named after Greek and Roman gods, Venus and Mars, Orion and Perseus. The moons of Uranus have classical names too, but from a much more recent source, Shakespeare's plays. By the way, did you know Uranus has 27 moons? Me neither. But why the moons of Uranus are named after Shakespeare characters is kind of a mystery and a shaggy dog story because the moons have been discovered gradually over the last 230 years. As producer Richard Paul, our shaggy dog specialist, explains. Shakespeare and outer space. What could they possibly have in common? Turns out, it all rests on names. Thy name well fits thy faith. Thy faith, thy name. Um, um, my name. What's thy name? My name is... When it comes to naming things in outer space, the rules are really strict. The smaller valleys on Mars are all named for rivers. There's Niger and Allegheny. The craters on Mercury are all artists and musicians like Bach, John Lennon, and Disney. And revolving around the planet Uranus, it's all Shakespeare all the time. There are actually people responsible for these names. I'm Tobias Owen, and I'm a professor at the Institute for Astronomy. That's uh, associated with the University of Hawaii. In the 1980s, he led a team that named practically every large thing in the outer reaches of our solar system. We put in, gosh, over a thousand names, 2,000 names, I don't know, just a huge number of names. And it was a lot of fun doing it. The practice of naming planets and stars goes all the way back to Galileo. It's become much more formal today, but basically for centuries the rule was, you find it, you name it. And it's that tradition that helps explain how William Shakespeare's characters ended up in outer space. Come! Some music! Come! Music, do I hear? Ha! Keep time! This is Symphony No. 17 in C Major by Friedrich William Herschel. He is where Shakespeare's path to outer space starts. Herschel wasn't just a symphony composer, he was also kind of a Renaissance man. When he was a teenager in England in the 1750s, he had just finished reading a book on the science behind the sound piano strings make. The author of that book had also written a huge book on optics. Herschel read that and developed a new passion. He started building his own mirrors and telescopes. Though he was just a kid, according to Cambridge University professor Michael Hoskins, who has written several books about Herschel, he managed to make himself a telescope where the mirror was, as it turned out, quite simply the finest on Earth. One night about 20 years later, Herschel aimed this impressive telescope out past Saturn and found an object that looked different from everything else out there. Four days later, he went back to have another look at it, and he found it had moved. He wasn't sure what he saw. He thought it was a moon. It wasn't a moon. In fact, you might say... It is a very error of the moon. What he'd seen was a planet, one no human had ever observed before. William Herschel had discovered Uranus. 
Now, there are plenty of places on the Internet and in books that will tell you that six years later, Herschel also discovered two moons around Uranus, that he named them Oberon and Titania for the king and queen of the fairies in Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream, and that that's the reason why 25 of the 27 known moons of Uranus today are all named after characters from Shakespeare. They'll tell you that, but they'll be wrong. Oh, hateful error. While he did discover those moons, Professor Hoskins says... William Herschel never gave any name to the two moons. He just called them number one and number two. No, Herschel didn't name them for Shakespeare characters. In fact, Professor Hoskins says... I've read a huge amount of what Herschel wrote, and as far as I know, he'd never heard of Shakespeare. Now, it turns out William Herschel had a son, John Herschel, who also became an astronomer, and he was no slouch. In fact, he was one of the most prominent scientists in Britain during the 1850s. John Herschel never discovered any moons, but he named a lot of them, according to Michael Crow, an emeritus professor at Notre Dame, who has edited an 800-page volume of John Herschel's letters. Back when William Herschel discovered those first two moons, he also thought he'd found two more. Forty-nine years later, his son John tried to find them again. Dr. Crow says he couldn't because... They're not there. And then in 1851, William LaSalle discovered two moons in another position, and they are actually there. Now, this is where the path starts to get a little windy, so stick with me here. LaSalle was a member of the Royal Astronomical Society at the time when John Herschel was its president. Whether he gave the moons their names, we don't know. We do know that John Herschel gave names to the moons of Saturn, so it's safe to assume he named the moons of Uranus, too. And he did once explain in a book why the moons have their names. Four satellites of Uranus are known to exist, to which the names Oberon, Titania, Umbriel and Ariel of the fairies, sylphs and gnomes of Shakespeare and Pope have been assigned respectively. By the way, Pope, there is the poet Alexander Pope. He's the only exception to the rule, the one literary figure other than Shakespeare who has a moon around Uranus named for him. Herschel never claimed credit for giving the moons their names, and the trail gets even murkier in 1899. That's when LaSalle's daughter told a reporter that the names were given by Sir John Herschel, to whom my father applied. Now, that could mean that LaSalle thought up the names and applied to Herschel for permission, but we'll never know for sure because she said she lost their letters during a move. So we leave the 19th century no wiser about how Shakespeare characters found their way onto the moons of Uranus. I am disgraced, impeached, and baffled here. Nah, don't be, because at this point, it didn't matter. That's because along with naming things, we humans have another enduring trait, following tradition. Especially tradition set long, long ago, and it would be a very long time before anyone had to raise this issue again. It was 1948, and the renowned American astronomer Gerard Kuiper was in Texas. One night, Kuiper was at the McDonald Observatory, moving its giant telescope from horizon to horizon, trying to prove something else entirely, 
when he accidentally discovered a fifth moon of Uranus. So you are now putting Kuiper among these prominent astronomers from the 19th and 18th centuries. This was really a big deal. That's Derek Sears of NASA's Ames Research Center in California, who's writing a biography of Kuiper. When the time came to name his new discovery, Kuiper could have gone either way. Character name from Shakespeare, character name from Pope. Kuiper picked a name that did double duty. He called his moon Miranda, which works. Remember, there's already a moon called Ariel. Ariel's in a poem by Pope and Ariel's in The Tempest by Shakespeare. Miranda is also in The Tempest, plus at one point Prospero calls her a little cherub, and a cherub is a fairy just like Ariel. Get it? Up to this point, the discovery and naming of Uranian moons was a a once-in-a-while thing. Once in a lifetime, actually. But in 1986, that all changed. Hundreds of scientists and engineers convene here. They are drawn to the laboratory by two Voyager spacecraft, electronic robots sent by NASA to explore the giant planets Jupiter and Saturn. The Voyager probes launched in 1977. Nine years later, Voyager 2 had moved past its original targets of Jupiter and Saturn and, as part of a grand tour of the universe, was now making its way to Uranus. Technicians were still getting data from the craft, and it was being handed out to interested scientists, people like Toby Owen, who was now chair of the Outer Planets Group within the International Astronomical Union's Committee on Nomenclature, a fun group you should join. As Voyager got near Uranus, Owen says... It was sending images. It was very exciting. We uh, sometimes joked with each other that it was kind of like being on Star Trek, that you're in the spaceship and you're approaching a satellite, and all of a sudden, there it is. You see the surface. It's wonderful. Among the things Voyager found around Uranus were 10 new moons. It was the job of Owen's committee to name them. They got started by looking through the original source for names, A Midsummer Night's Dream, so they named the first moon Puck. Then the next moon they named Cordelia, then Ophelia, then Bianca. They also used Cressida and Desdemona. See a trend here? Then Julia, Portia, and Rosalind. That's Rosalind from As You Like It, not Rosaline from Romeo and Juliet, if you're scoring at home. We'd have some arguments about things, and then... uh... Ultimately, we'd, we'd reach a consensus. As discoveries continued after Voyager, so did the Shakespeare names. In fact, the next time a moon was discovered, a real Shakespeare lover was on hand for the naming process. One of the very few books I took with me was my complete Shakespeare. Today, Brett Gladman holds the Canada Research Chair in Planetary Astronomy. In 1996, he was a grad student at the Palomar Observatory in San Diego. I never get time to read my Shakespeare, so I took it with me. I read my Shakespeare on my patio with my rosé wine in the evening. In California, he was teamed with another young Canadian astronomer, J.J. Kavalars, who's now a professor at the University of Victoria in British Columbia. What we were doing was looking by eye, basically. We would take two images or three images, and we'd look at one image, the next image, the next. Dun, 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 dun. We just three in a row, over and over and over again, looking for anything that seemed to move. One set of pictures they took were from the night of September 6, 1997, when they were looking at the outer solar system close to Uranus. 
When they both left California soon after that and headed back to Canada, they took those pictures with them. I was back in my institution flipping through them on this computer monitor and marking down stuff that I see as real. And my colleague Brett Gladman is at his institution in Toronto doing the same thing, trying to see these things and figure out which ones are real. The series of images from that one night seemed to show something moving in a way that suggested that they maybe just might have found two brand new moons. In fact, they had, and fortunately, Brett had that complete works of Shakespeare on hand. Here's how he picked the name. When they took these pictures, the technique they used allowed scientists to see much fainter bodies than they ever had, bringing them out of the dark like never before. Once Brett learned the naming convention, that they all had to be Shakespeare characters, he thought, What's a Shakespearean character that lives in the dark, right? And so Caliban leapt out right away as, you know, a creature emerging out of the dark. After Caliban, they named the next one Sycorax. There's a Tempest connection there, but they also did it partly because J.J. was this huge Doctor Who fan. I demand to know who you are! A couple years later, they found more moons with odd, staggering orbits that they named Stefano and Trinculo after the drunks in the Tempest. Others were named for Prospero and Cetibos, Francisco, and also Margaret from Much Ado About Nothing. Now, it would, of course, be a lot more practical and efficient to dispense with these naming conventions, to call these new moons 15262 or 181P. And we do tend to think of scientists as practical and efficient people. But like everyone else, scientists like following tradition. And as NASA's Derek Sears says, occasionally giving in to the tug of romance. I do think most astronomers have some sort of a a huge romantic streak. It's just something about the, the right side of the brain of the astronomers that says, let's give them all names, you know. <laughs> it's totally unnecessary, but we kind of like it. <laughs> Richard Paul brought us that story with help from the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum and the Folger Shakespeare Library. It's not just astronomers who are fixated on Shakespeare. Right now is the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death, so it has seemed sometimes as if everybody has been celebrating him. Well, not quite everyone. There is this guy in Pittsburgh. My name is Ted Hoover, and I am a theater critic for almost 30 years, and I hate William Shakespeare. In addition to reviewing 3,500 plays, I also used to do a lot of theater myself. I ran three theater companies here in town. I was was an actor, a producer, a director, and a writer. That's really kind of how I even got into being a theater critic, was being a playwright. My favorite play is The Glass Menagerie by Tennessee Williams. Every time, If, if the play's done well, I am just reduced to tears at the end. I'm just sitting in my chair, sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. The beauty of that play is absolutely extraordinary. But in the world of theater, of course, everyone's number one pick, top of the charts, is William Shakespeare. People love his uh, humanity, just kind of the whole of the human experience is encapsulated in these plays. 
and so many expressions and idioms that we have today, he invented. They'd be strange bedfellows. But all that glitters is not gold. It was Greek to me. And I'll send him packing. For actors, like you haven't arrived until you've played Lear. When we are born, we cry that we are come to this great stage of fools. People will go on about um, Gilgood's Hamlet. What's Hecuba to him or he to Hecuba that he should weep for her? People will compare how certain actresses performed the letter scene for Macbeth. Come, you spirits, that tend on mortal thoughts. Unsex me. Well, I mean, before I get into this, this is really where I'm getting into the negative stuff. One of the reasons that Shakespeare is so popular still is because theater has become the cult of the director. And directors love Shakespeare because Shakespeare's dead. (laughs) And directors have to, you know, have to make their mark. They They have to show the world that they are artists. And the more they move away from the source material the more it becomes their vision. So one of the things that people who like Shakespeare, you know, like his stories and consider him to be such a great storyteller and, you know, how well he knew human nature. But the comedies, a lot of them, the comedy is based on the fact that somebody pretends to be somebody else. And for some reason, nobody knows. Like, literally, someone parts their hair the other way and the entire town doesn't know who it is. I mean, you just have to kind of sit there and tap your feet for an act and a half. Oh, look. Oh, it's Dromeo. What a surprise. I didn't realize he had a different colored beret on this time. If you had a lick of intelligence in your head, this play would not happen. It only happens if you are stupid. And I think the ultimate of that is... Oh, Romeo, Romeo. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? You know, it's supposed to be this hymn to deathless love. Like, Romeo and Juliet are the most romantic couple in the history of literature. Have not saints' lips and holy palmers, too? My pilgrim, lips that they must use in prayer. But when you read the play, we meet Romeo. He's in lot, totally in love with this girl named Rosalind. Can't live without her. He goes to this party meets Juliet. Well then, dear saint, let lips do what hands do. They pray, grant thou, lest faith turn to despair. You kiss by the book. And three days later, they're laying at the bottom of a tomb with some cousins and some suitors. All these has been a sword fight and all this stuff. She wasn't allowed to marry him, so she concocted with the friar to take some kind of potion that made her look dead. But they had, I guess, bad postal service in Verona, so Romeo never got the letter. Eyes. Look your last. So he naturally kills himself. And just as he's dying, she wakes up. Oh, hi, honey. Oh, you're dead. Okay, well, then I will really kill myself. This is my sheep. They'll rust and let me die. Why didn't you do it in the first act and I could be home in bed right now? (laughs) 
you know, what is that? You know, what what audience is going to appreciate something like that except people who have studied that play? You know, a kid who's in 10th grade who's taken to see a production of Julius Caesar is never going to go back to the theater again for as long as he lives. People don't go to the theater anymore. And I think that one of the reasons that people don't go to the theater is because of this reliance on these ancient plays. Part of being the torchbearer for the anti-Shakespeare crowd is that I have a very, very low-rent reputation among theater pe- uh, some theater people. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, I've had a lot of people say to me, you know, I'm, so, I'm glad you said it, finally. You know, I've been made to feel like a Philistine because I don't like Shakespeare. You know, when you look at it, most of the world hates Shakespeare. Now, currently, I review one play a week, which I am allowed to pick which play I review. I do not pick Shakespeare. So I haven't seen, actually, a Shakespeare play in about six years. And they've been six glorious years. That's theater critic Ted Hoover, who's based in Pittsburgh. So, how about you? What is something that everyone, including your friends and serious people, say that you should love, but that you just don't? Send us a voice memo telling us what that thing is and explaining a few of your reasons to studio360 at wnyc.org, and we might talk to you for the show. Still ahead this hour? Why at least some part of your body probably isn't still right now. When it comes to dancing the Zydeco, all you have to do is move something. You know, it don't matter how you move it, where you move it. Just move something and it all fits and it's going to feel good to you. The man who popularized Zydeco music in the 1960s. That's next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Zydeco bubbled out of western Louisiana and east Texas in the early 1960s. Clifton Chenier was one of the first musicians to popularize it. He started playing it on his accordion for local dances and became known as the Zydeco King. All the more so after he released his album Bogalusa Boogie in 1975. To tell the story of Bogalusa Boogie, we will hear from the album's producer. My name is Chris Strachwitz. And I'm the president, or was, of Varhuli Records, Incorporated. A Louisiana music scholar. My name is Anne Savoie, and I've spent my life documenting and recording Cajun music, living in southwest Louisiana, and playing Cajun music. And a guy who played with Clifton. My name is C.J. Chenier, and Clifton Chenier was my father. The thing that made my dad the king of Zydeco is that, first of all, that style he created, and second of all, there was nobody that could play it better than him. Clifton Chenier and his brother Cleveland pretty much defined what is Zydeco. Zydeco is very, very fun music, man. I mean, just it's, it's, it's off the hook. 
when it comes to dancing the Zydeco, all you have to do is move something. You know, it, it don't matter how you move it, where you move it. Just move something and it all fits and it's going to feel good to you. They were just developing that music when I first got to Houston in, in 1960. It was a music that didn't really have a name yet at the time. And Clifton, upon my asking him, you know, what do you call this music? And he said, well, we used to call it la-la music. We used to call it French music. We used to call it push-and-pull music. I don't know Zadiko. Clifton always said that. Let's go to the Zadiko. So Zadiko came to mean a dance, a black dance party. And it comes from a very old field holler. In French, it means something like snap beans, not salty, because in those days, people were so poor. You know, they were celebrating when they had a little salt to put in their snap bean. My dad's dad, Joseph Chenier, played a button accordion. But my dad's idea was he could get more out of a keyboard accordion. It's a, a very large accordion with a piano keyboard on your right hand and a whole lot of bass buttons on your left hand. You know, when he get on that stage and put that accordion on his shoulder, he turned into another person. Because he loved his audience, and he loved to make them have a good time. Boogaloo Some Boogie's an unusual record. I have all of Clifton's records, and that's my very favorite one. I told Cliff what I'd love to record would be the French music, as he called it. And he said, Chris, that ain't hidden on nothing these days. I need to make rock and roll records. And I said, well, I hope you can do some of them in French. <laughs> and, the, and the lucky thing was that he finally said, okay. Well, when it comes to Boogaloosa Boogie, my dad had a pattern in the studio. And that was, let's go in there, do it like we're in a nightclub, and, and finish, the, finish the album. So it was like not a whole bunch of double takes and do-overs and all that stuff. Also, they didn't get too drunk that day. They just worked. They just did one number after the other. Boom, boom, boom. And it was fantastic. They went in the studio, and in two hours, they walked out and the record was done. People began to say about him that he was the king of Zydeco. Proclaimed by the world and self-proclaimed also. There are many photos of Clifton and a crown. Well, it was a gimmick. You've got to have a gimmick. It was a special thing for my dad to pull that crown out when he was on stage. You know, he didn't wear it on stage all the time, but when he felt real good, some nights he would feel real good. And on those nights, he'd tell us, go get my king hat. That's what he called it. He didn't call it a crown. He called it a king hat. Clifton Chenier traveled the world with Zydeco. I mean, he was the man that made Zydeco known all over the world. He mixed all that together, blues, waltzes, Zydeco, 
ballads and boogie woogie. It was a real mixture of black music in general and the French Creole element, you know. Since him, even the people today say that was the man that we are all trying to be, is Clifton Chenier. That is fab. I'm going to start calling Zydeco Lala music. You heard Anne Savoie, Chris Strackwitz, and Clifton's son, C.J. Chenier. Bogalusa Boogie is being preserved by the Library of Congress in the National Recording Registry, and our story about it was produced by Ben Manila for BMP Audio. And that's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our team includes... Jenny Lawton. Andrew Adam Newman. Louie Mitchell. Krista Ripple. Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Matt Fiddler. Tommy Bazarian. Zoe Saunders. Gabriella Cortez. Judy Gu. Jackie Harris. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening. Studio 360's series on creativity and science is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information online at sloan.org. Next time in Studio 360, hmm, what's a nine-letter word for a colorful swallow? That would be jello shot. Brendan Emmett Quigley shows me how he makes crosswords for the New York Times. Next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. 